about heaven, and that was tons of fun. And now we're getting ready to talk about hell, and that is more difficult. Um, it, it's difficult theologically because as I've uh, immersed myself in this study, I have discovered that there are actually a lot of different thoughts and views and perspectives uh, about hell, all of which claim the Bible as their source material uh, and, and say these views that we're presenting about hell are in fact biblical. And as I've sort of entered the world of, of theological study of hell, I have discovered that, uh, that it's a much broader and, and, and wider world than I had ever dreamed possible. Uh, and, and so that, that poses a lot of difficulties. And, and, and some observations that I've made uh, is that there there's, tends to be, and there seems to be, uh, a new surge of universalism. Uh, universalism is the, the belief that in the end, everybody will be saved. Uh, the grace of God will, in fact, uh, sway every heart uh, to, to follow him. Now, this, of course, requires that after death, post-mortem, there's an opportunity to make a decision for God. Uh, and, and I want to, to say to you that I don't feel like that this is what the Bible teaches. Uh, it's, it's very popular. There's lots, of, um, uh, there's, there's lots of material out there about universalism. Uh, but at the end of the day, after studying, I really don't feel like this is uh, the truth. Uh, there, there is also a growing conviction that there is no hell, that heaven is this uh, beautiful reality, this wonderful thing that we can celebrate. But when it comes to uh, hell, then there's not only a growing trend toward universalism, but a growing trend toward there is no, there actually is no hell. Uh, and that any hell that there is, is, is just sort of a, uh, a present day hell or a hell that we live uh, here and now. And, and, and I've said that heaven and hell are both current realities, uh, but this is that even as a future reality, hell does not exist. Uh, both of these positions regarding hell come from the tension of a good and loving God and the reality of a place that, that people might end up uh, that, that removes them from the possibility of experiencing his goodness and his love. Uh, and, and so there's, there seems to be a tension there that, that how can a God who is in charge of everything and he's good and he's loving, how, if that is true, then how in the world can hell exist or how can anyone end up there? And so both the thought and the belief that there is no hell or that there may be a hell, but uh, no one will ultimately be there, uh, it comes out, grows out of this, this tension. Over the next two weeks, I want to uh, help to, us to think about this tension because it is a tension. And, and I want to give us just some ideas and perspectives of how to, how to begin thinking about that. So, so hell is difficult to talk about theologically. Uh, hell is difficult to talk about, though, because when we talk about the doctrine of hell, we aren't really talking so much about a doctrine that exists in a vacuum. We're talking about real people. Uh, we're talking about our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers who maybe don't know Christ, have not made a, a profession of, of faith in Christ in their life. We're talking about the loved ones that we've lost along the way, that, that we were uncertain about their, their spiritual state. And so when we talk about hell, we're not really just talking about a, a doctrine that sort of exists in a vacuum. We're talking about real people. We're talking about real lives. And we're talking about real destinies. And, and so I want to... 
I want to approach the next two weeks with a tremendous amount of sensitivity. Uh, and yet, at the very same time, hold on to the conviction that the threat of hell is every bit as real as the hope of heaven. That the threat of hell is every bit as real as the hope of heaven. And over the last two or three weeks, we've laid out what is our hope of heaven? Is it really made up of halos and harps and cloud cars? Or is it something much more hopeful than that? And so as we've laid out a hope of heaven, what I, what I also want to say and the conviction that I want to hold is, is that the threat of hell is every bit as real as, as the hope of heaven. Uh, but I want to handle that with sensitivity, realizing that we're not just talking about a doctrine, we're talking about people. Um, and, and so that's sort of the direction that I want to go. More specifically, though, I I want to take the two weeks to give to you two views of what hell is uh, and outline those views biblically. uh, And then at the end of the two weeks, sort of leave you with the opportunity to take home the information that we've shared and begin to formulate uh, a belief on hell and and a theology of hell, you might say, uh, for yourselves. Uh, because of all the views and thoughts and perspectives, I feel like there's two that have the most uh, ground to stand on biblically uh, that I want to share with you over the next two weeks. The first week uh, today is, is the traditional view of hell, uh, which theologians call eternal conscious torment. Uh, that is to say that for those who do not accept Christ, do not place their faith in Christ, they will, be, uh, they will exist eternally in a conscious state of punishment and regret uh, for all of eternity, having rejected Christ uh, in their life. Uh, we're going to look at that today. Uh, and then next week, I want to look at a view called, and, and see if you can spell this. <laughs> I want to, to look at a view called annihilationism, annihilationism, uh, which is also termed or coined conditionalism. And uh, this is the view that uh, that post-mortem, after people die, they do go to a place of punishment and torment, but it's not for all of eternity. Uh, It is a place where the sin in their life, since it's not covered by the blood of Christ, the sin plays itself out fully in that person's life. And Romans, uh, Romans says that the wage of sin or the cost of sin is death. And so this view of hell is Post-mortem, they go to a place of, of punishment, but it will ultimately lead to both physical and spiritual death where that person ceases to exist or that person is annihilated. So annihilationism uh, or conditionalism. We're going to look at that in detail next week. We're going to talk about eternal conscious torment uh, today. Sound like fun? <laughs> now you know why we put the sermon in the beginning. In the beginning. Uh, Because, again, what I want to say is that everything, everything is within the framework that it is God's desire and heart that all should come to know him. And he has made a way through the death of his son, Jesus, that all would come into salvation. It is a free gift offered to each and every one of us. And so what we want to emphasize is the love of God and the possibility of salvation. So uh, 
let's get started. And I think it would be in order to pray, to pray and ask God to give us wisdom. So let's do that. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word. And uh, we want to be uh, true to your word. We want to uh, stand under your word. And Lord, I I pray that you would um, give us wisdom, that you would illuminate your scriptures and our minds to to fully grasp and to understand your truth. And uh, Lord, we we want to be faithful to preach and teach and discover the whole gospel, uh, even the difficult parts, even the parts that uh, maybe are more difficult to walk through and to understand. And so, Lord, we need you. Uh, We need your presence and we need your wisdom. And so would you give it to us in abundance now as we open up your word and study it together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some, uh, Some general observations about hell. Uh, for, for generations or for what seems like a very long time, for many, many years, hell has been pictured as a place of fire uh, where the devil has horns, uh, maybe a pitchfork, uh, wears a red suit, or maybe he just has red skin. Theologians are still debating about that. No, they're, they're not. Um, and, and so, uh, and, and so there's, uh, but there's, if you've seen paintings, uh, particularly from the medieval period, you see that the hell is a place of darkness and fire, and the people there are under torment. They they appear to be very miserable, and and, and they're sort of in, in, in their their face portrays that of inescapable agony. And, and, and so, whatever you uh, whether these realities or or whether these depict reality or not, one thing is certain about hell, uh, and that is that the hell, generally speaking, is the complete absence of the presence of God. That when we talk about hell, what we're talking about is, is if you were to take your life and remove God from the picture. And, and some might say, well, if you've rejected God, then you've already removed God from the picture because God does not force himself upon us. And that, that's true. The, the free gift of salvation is not forced upon you. It's something that you can choose. It's something that God offers to us, but it's not something that God will force his way into our hearts. And so we... we Because true love demands a choice. God loves you abundantly enough that he would offer that that you choose to love him in return. If he made us love him in return, then his love for us isn't real. Uh, And so we have this free choice. But even if someone chooses to reject God, their life is still saturated with the presence of God. That there is a common grace made available to all uh, where God is, is moving and guiding and directing and protecting uh, even those who would reject him. Uh, his presence is, is absolutely covers this world. And so when we think about hell, it is the complete absence of the presence of God. His common grace falls all over over all of humanity. The scripture talks about how the rain uh, falls on the wicked and the righteous. And so regardless of your state of faith, if your success in business, your ability, your skill in life is God-given, relationships that are, are joy to you are given to you by God and in fact evidence of the existence of God himself. Your life is absolutely permeated by the presence of God and hell is the absence 
of that. Hell is taking all those good gifts, those, that common grace of God, and taking it away from your life. That's hell. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who is a, a brilliant writer and theologian, uh, he wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And in this book, he um, paints pictures of, of, of heaven and of hell. And these, these are sort of metaphorical pictures to allow us to think about the realities of these two uh, uh, places of existence, heaven and hell. And he pictures hell in this way. I find this very, very compelling. He pictures hell this way. He says that hell is a city that is gray. It's a gray city. It is always raining, and it is always just before sunrise. And so in this gray city where it's always raining, there's always just the slightest evidence that the sun will rise, but the sun never comes up. It's a way of people always hoping for something, but hope always being just out of reach is what C.S. Lewis portrays in this book. It's a gray city, always raining, where the sun is just about to rise, but actually never does. Inhabitants of the city are utterly isolated from one another. In other words, it is a city made of no neighborhoods. There's not a neighborhood to be found. There, you simply do not have a neighbor. It's utter isolation. I live by myself, utterly separated from anyone, and increasingly separated from those. In other words, my furthest neighbor away, C.S. Lewis says, it could be a million miles. You could be a million miles from any other person, and that distance is always growing. This is what he pictures as hell as an existence. And he says, however, but however you can think of, of anything you want. You can imagine whatever you want and it will be there. The problem is that whatever you imagine, so let's say you imagine the house of your dreams. If you can think it, it can be yours, he says. But the problem is, is that it is always a false reality of the thing that you've created. In other words, you want a house, the house of your dreams, you imagine it and it's there, but it can't serve its most basic function of protecting you from the rain. And so, you, so, so it's this sense in which you have everything you want, but those things can't do their most basic function. So the house of your dreams can't keep you or protect you from the rain. This is how C.S. Lewis pictures hell. And I find it to be very compelling because at the heart of a rejection of who Christ is, is a selfishness. I'm trying to become my own savior in some way or another. And that is utterly selfish. And so C.S. Lewis says, if you're going to be utterly selfish and choose to reject Christ, then ultimately the experience that will lead you to is a life of isolation where you have no one but yourself. And you contrast that to the truth of the gospel, which is if you want to find your life, you must lose it. If you want to be filled up, you must empty yourself out into other people. It's utterly, utterly made for community, the life of the kingdom of God. And and his presence saturates the community and our life together. And then if you take that away, and you take that presence away, what you have is hell. And so, 
regardless of, of how people have imagined hell, uh, the, the primary thing is that hell is a place utterly cut off from whatever is real or whatever is communal. The hell is a place cut off. Oh, well, that's very great, uh, but we're not here to study The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. We're here to study the Bible. And, and so while these are very compelling, uh, ultimately the question must be asked, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? So uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be there in a second, but we're going to do some... Uh, how many of you are ready to learn some Greek today? Anybody want to learn some Greek? For two or three cheers for Greek. The rest of you are like, I don't care. Just tell me what the Bible says, right? Uh, but we're going to learn some Greek because in order to really grasp these concepts and these ideas, uh, we've we got to learn Greek. Uh, we've got to learn uh, how our English translators have done uh, for us. And so uh, the most commonly, wor- commonly used word in the Greek that is translated in your Bibles that you hold in your hands today as the word hell is the word Gehenna. Uh, That is G-E-H-E-N-N-A, Gehenna. When people talk about any sort of theology of hell, any idea of hell that they have gotten from from an English Bible, they are talking about the word Gehenna. And it is used 13 times in the New Testament. And so Every single picture, idea, thought, perspective, theology of hell that we have has come from 13 verses in the New Testament. By and large, when we talk about the word hell, it's used 13 times. 12 times by Jesus in the Gospels, most in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, One time by James in his epistle uh, when James is talking about the power of the tongue. The power of the tongue. Uh, And so, but the word Gehenna actually indicates a location. Uh, Ge means valley, and then Henna is the valley of Hinnom. And so the word Gehenna literally means the valley of Hinnom. And we're going to talk, we're going to discover why that has been translated as hell uh, a little bit later. But here, here's a sampling uh, of the word hell in the New Testament. Uh, again, Jesus uses this word 12 times in the Gospels, most in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, James uses it once in his epistle, talking about the power of the tongue. But here's, here's just a quick sampling. Uh, these aren't provided in any notes or outline that you might be looking at, uh, but it's... Uh, but, but let me just fire them off real, here real quick. Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell, the fire of Gehenna. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, just seven verses after what we just talked about. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not be afraid of those uh, who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather be afraid of the one, capital O, one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew chapter 18, verse 9. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better to you, for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. 
And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, what is startling about this passage and these passages is that Jesus and then James, when talking about the tongue, seem much more concerned about how we are living today than telling us about our postmortem future. Uh, that anything that says this is a reality for you in the future is for the purpose of adjusting our heart, our behavior, or our perspective today, this life, here and now. And, and, and so oftentimes, so you find it's very startling when you look at all the, the uses of hell. The, the only time that it points to a future reality of hell is in order to instruct us for our life today. That is to say that Jesus is very concerned and, and, and wants to talk to us about how we live our lives today. And I find that very interesting because we've, we've sort of grown up in a culture of Christianity that has made Christianity all about where do you go when you die. And that's important, and that's why we're doing this series. But more important, according to the Bible, is how we form, form our lives according to the way of Jesus today. In other words, how are we living in light of heaven or embodying the ways of heaven versus how are the ways in which we are embodying the ways of hell here and now? That's why we need to understand that, that when we talk about heaven and hell, they're not just future realities. They're very present realities as well. Uh, but as I've said, I still hold that they are also very real future realities. But we talk about the future for the purpose of shaping our lives today. A lot of times, uh, we, we've done a couple of series. I've been here seven years, and in, in, a couple, in seven years we've done two, maybe three um, series on Revelation. We've done uh, studies on heaven and hell. We, we, we tend to look a lot at things that are future-oriented. And then a lot of times I, I get questions. Man, why are you so worried about studying Revelation? You know that as a pastor, you're not supposed to touch that stuff. That is not preachable. Right? And, and, and people are like, man, why, why? Like, heaven is heaven. Why study it? Hell is hell, man. Why study it? It's just... That's where you go when you die. Well, uh, I, we study that because I feel like that what we believe about the end shapes how we live today. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Listen, th this fire of hell painted as a reality in the afterlife is for the purpose of shaping our lives today. And so, uh, you know, we, we study things about the future so that we can change our lives today. There's two options for interpreting Gehenna. And uh, depending on what book you read, what commentary you pick up, uh, or any of this, it, it will mostly will land in one of these two camps. And, and, and uh, you know, boring people that, that bury their head in a book and study theology all day. <sighs> That's supposed to be a joke. Very under the radar. <laughs> but so it wasn't really a joke because some of you are like, that is boring. Man, theologians, though, uh, have never come to an agreement on this. And so I'm, I'm giving you two options, uh, both of which 
are accepted as, as being real, viable interpretations for the word Gehenna. You ready? Isn't this fun? Some of you are like, when do we sing again? Like, when is the singing part? Uh, Gehenna, again, literally means Valley of Hinnom. Nobody argues that. means Valley of Hinnom. Uh, one option for interpretation is that the Valley of Hinnom was a city garbage dump outside of Jerusalem in the first century. And, and so anytime that Jesus was giving a warning about Gehenna or the fires of Gehenna or, or the uh, gnashing of teeth in Gehenna, was, was, it was basically Jesus pointing literally just a few miles over there and saying, if you, if you don't live in this way, then you'll be subject to and using this physical place as a metaphor, the, the fires of the trash dump over here. And, and it was always on fire because they were burning the trash. It, there was gnashing of teeth because uh, folks say that the, the dogs and animals would fight over the food and, and, and the scraps that have been left behind. And so there's gnashing of teeth, there's fire, there's darkness. There's all sorts of these metaphors and images. And, and there's a lot of people say, well, that was just a, a way of talking about the, the, the Larimer County landfill. <laughs> you know, like it's just, that's hell, Gehenna, it's over there, that place. And, and, and so that's one argument. Now, now, obviously, Jesus isn't saying, you know, in the afterlife, you're going to be thrown in that particular garbage dump. But Jesus is using it as a metaphor to talk about the reality of hell. And, and, and so people that hold this view say that he was much more concerned with living in the kingdom in kingdom ways now than telling us about how to get to heaven when you die. Uh, and, and many of the passages that I just mentioned, again, seem to be addressing present behavior more than a future destiny. That if we were to wait, what is the, the emphasis of the passage? The emphasis seems to be adjust your life now, not where do you go when you die. Uh, and, and so I find this option very compelling uh, because it fits well within what Jesus was doing overall in his ministry and proclaiming the, the present reality of the kingdom of God. Uh, when, he's, when he's talking about how we live today, uh, I, I think that there's a lot of evidence that, that would say this, is, this could be true. Uh, now, the other option for interpretation, interpretation for the Valley of, of Hinnom was that it was uh, a place in the Old Testament where some of the Israelites participated in idolatrous worship, where they worshipped the Canaanite gods of Melech and Baal, or you may have heard it said, Baal. That's how we say it in Kansas. Baal. B-A-A-L. Baal. But when you listen to the audio Bible, it's Baal. Baal. So that, that was free. That was free, that little tidbit. So according to 2 Kings chapter 16, they sacrificed their children to the false gods there, and they made them pass through the fire. The, the prophet Jeremiah uses, picks up on this imagery of this place of idolatrous worship and disobedience and, and, and child sacrifice. The prophet Jeremiah picks up on that location, turns it into a metaphor, and he says the valley of Hinnom is where the wicked will be cast. This place with, with terrible disobedience and, and darkness and all of that, the prophet Jeremiah says, metaphorically speaking, that's where the wicked are cast after death, a place sort of like that. And so Either way you cut it, when we talk about Gehenna, the English word hell, it's being used metaphorically for a particular type of experience, not necessarily a particular location. Are you with me? In other words, if you were to drill to the center of the earth, hell is not there. But a lot of people have said that. 
No, really, for real, man, honestly, like if we could just drill deep enough, we'd get there. And if we would go high enough, we'd get to heaven. This is not the, the, what, what the Bible teaches about these two realities of heaven and hell. And so, therefore, Gehenna was used as a, a metaphor for where the wicked will be punished. In other words, it is used, a physical location is used to signify a reality or an idea. Are you with me? And that is to say the punishment of the wicked is not used to, to, do, to, find, to, to indicate a particular location. Now, I find this view compelling. Uh, number one, because we have real historical evidence that, that the Valley of Hinnom was a place of disobedience in the Old Testament. And then number two, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the New Testament period where Jesus was walking the earth, there is no evidence, archaeological or otherwise, that there was a trash heap outside of Jerusalem. It wasn't until hundreds of years after the, the time of Jesus that one person uh, picked up on the idea that actually there was a trash heap outside of Jerusalem. But archaeology doesn't show that. Uh, other writings don't show that. There, there, there seems to be very sparse evidence that, in fact, the, the trash heap is, is a verifiable, historically verifiable idea. Where, in the Old Testament, it says right there, the Valley of Hinnom was a place of disobedience, and, and then we find the prophet Jeremiah picking up on that. And so, when we talk about Gehenna, the exact meaning is one of continual debate. And so, when we read the passages about Gehenna, hell, we, there, there's a lot of room for understanding, misunderstanding, and interpretation that's pretty wide. And so where do people pick up on this idea of eternal conscious torment? Well, there's one passage of Scripture uh, that seems to indicate pretty clearly uh, that the future for anyone who does not accept Christ is, in fact, uh, being punished or tormented for all of eternity. And that's found in Matthew chapter 25. I've asked you to turn there, so many of you are there already. Uh, But let's read Matthew chapter 25. I want to read verses 31 through 46. 31 through 46. And then we'll look at this together. And we'll we'll do some more Greek. Because that's how it is when you're studying heaven and hell. you got to know Greek. Okay? So let's look at this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on the throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate people from one from another as a sheep separates the sheep, uh, as a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats. That'd be awkward, right? The sheep doing the work. Uh, and, and so he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on the right, the sheep, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And when the righteous, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and, and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, I I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you have also done for me. And then he will say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. For I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. 
I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of these least of these, you did not do for me. Then verse 46. Then they will go away, go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This passage talks about the judgment of Christ, where Christ sorts out the righteous from the wicked. And we've said before that, that judgment is not all about a mean God finally getting his day. Right? The, the judgment is about God sorting things out so that he can bring about his new world. And in order to, to bring about a world with no sin or evil or pain, there must be a sorting out of the things that, that bring pain and evil and tears and pain and all of these things. There must be a sorting out. And this passage talks about that sorting out. Uh, sheep's over here. Goat's over here. And so uh, we need to come to terms with this passage and, and begin to understand it. Um, it appears on the surface, I want to I get this out. It appears on the surface that judgment is made on the basis of performance alone, right? I was, I was sick, I was hungry, I was these things, you, you did these things or you did not do these things. And that seems to be the basis of the judgment is only on performance or action alone. Uh, but the Bible, however, does not teach that salvation is by works. Uh, but rather, the rest of the Bible is clear that our motivation to, to love and care for the poor, to, do the, to live in the way of the kingdom, is brought about by the change in our hearts that comes through faith in Christ. Are you with me? The, the Bible doesn't say if, you just, if you're just a good moral person, if you just act well, or if you just do the right thing, then, then based on your performance, or, or if your life is a scale and your good works outweigh the bad works, then you're good to go. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, in fact, given over to our own heart's way, that, that our heart would go against God. It would go against other people. It would act selfishly every time. It's when we accept the love of God and he changes our hearts that that then morality and goodness and kingdom living flows out of a change of our hearts. That's what the Bible teaches. And so salvation is not on works Alone, as it would say this, but rather, as James says, it is when we place our faith in Christ that our lives express in works the work that God has done in our heart. Uh, And so James says, faith without works is dead. In other words, if you have a faith with no works, God hasn't really changed your heart. Uh, That's the point that James is making. And so, uh, so so this is not judgment on the basis of performance or action. Uh, But... Either way, Jesus says, some will go to eternal punishment and some will go to eternal life. And so, uh, once again, a Greek lesson is in order. Okay? The word punishment here is the word colossus. Is the Greek word colossus. Uh, Possible meanings in the English language include correction, pruning or trimming, or punishment. And so there are some that have said that because a possible meaning is pruning or trimming, that, that hell is actually just a time of, of pruning or trimming, of improvement, 
while we prepare our hearts to, to ultimately go to heaven. And that would be uh, a widely held view of, of uh, the universalists, those who, who believe in, in universalism, that every, ultimately everyone will, will be saved by Christ and come to know him. It's, that it's any kind of punishment post-mortem is for the purpose of pruning or trimming so that we would be ready to enter heaven. Uh, However, punishment is the most likely interpretation because the word colossus is used only three times, three other times in the New Testament. And every time, uh, when we look at the word in context, it pretty much requires the the understanding of punishment, not pruning. Are you with me? And so, so... and actually, after this series and after Faith Promise, we're going to do a series called How to Study the Bible. Pretty practical. And one of the things you're not going to get in this series, so let me share it with you now, is when you're looking at a word and you want to know how is this word to be understood, look at how that word is used everywhere else. And if it's only used a handful of times, there's a pretty good chance that they're being used consistently. Now, if it's used 150 times in the New Testament... You can't really rely on just one way of using that word. But it's used only four times, Colossus. The context of the other three times requires that we interpret it punishment. So there's no reason to understand that we shouldn't also understand that what we're talking about here is punishment for those that God sorts out. Then the word eternal is the word aeonios. Aeonios. Good luck spelling that. A I O. N-I-O-S. And uh, while Colossus is used only four times in the New Testament, Aeonios, in all of its other forms, is used literally dozens of times. Dozens of times in the New Testament. Possible meanings include, and you'll find this tremendously helpful, possible meanings include an age or a period of time with a clear beginning and end, or the other meaning Eternity. Isn't that helpful? It could mean a period of time with a clear beginning and end, or it could mean a period of time with no beginning and no end. Ha! There you have it. Perfect. Very easy to understand. And so that's the two possible meanings. Uh, it's the same word as eternal life. So, so when, when Jesus says, they will go to eternal punishment, aeonios colossus, he said, then the righteous will go to eternal life, aeonios zoe. And, and, and so it's like, how are we to understand this word in the context of how it's being used? Well, I'm pretty sure that when we talk about aeonios in terms of life for the righteous, we mean eternity, right? I don't think anybody would say, well, heaven is awesome, but just for a little while, Okay. Uh, and so since it's used in such close context, then we need to come to the conclusion that, in fact, this aeonios is also for eternity. Which means this passage of Scripture and others like it indicate that for those who do not place their faith in Christ, there is a never-ending period of punishment post-mortem. This means two things. One, if you, have, if you are here this morning and you have placed your faith in Christ, may this reality 
lead us to a much greater zeal to share the good news. May we not have such a selfish attitude that we would say, I've got it. I'm on the heaven bus. You better get on it too. And then isolate ourselves. But may we instead, realizing the possibility of the future that awaits our friends, our family members, our loved ones that have not accepted Christ, may we with love demonstrate the gospel through our lives and declare the gospel with our words. The second thing it means is that if you're here today and you've not yet come to a place in your life where you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is an opportunity to do that today and every day. Whether it's in your house with your roommates, whether it's in the church service like this, whether it's through a conversation with a friend or a coworker, the opportunity for salvation in Christ is wide and expansive and never-ending, where God in his common grace is revealing himself to you, showing and demonstrating his goodness to you, and inviting you in. Inviting you in for the purpose of new life in him. Inviting you in for the purpose of a blessed eternity with him. And for, at the end of the day, salvation has been made possible for all people. There will, some, there will be some who choose to reject that. But I pray that each one of us would be among those who choose to receive it and believe the good news. To address the question of how could a loving God condemn someone to an, an, an existence of torment and regret and punishment, um, the Bible says that because we have sinned, we stand condemned already. That it isn't God up in heaven sending people to hell. But rather the picture is, is one where God sees that because our hearts are sinful, we're condemned already. That the natural course of our hearts is to live in an existence of, of selfishness and isolation. And in love, God offers us another way. In love, he opens his arms of salvation and says, come into a way of life where I will never leave you or forsake you, where you will always be in community, at least with me. And I'm going to offer you another community that is, that is living and seeking to live in the same ways as you. And that community is called the church. Let me offer you all of these things. You see, it isn't God's heart to say, you're going to get what you deserve, and so I'm sending you to hell. But rather, it's God's loving heart to say, because of sin, you stand condemned already but I've set out on a rescue plan.
to offer you new life. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the loving God that we serve. So I don't know where you're at today. You may be a Christian. And you need a new zeal for sharing the gospel. And you may be a Christian here today, and your default position has been to thank God for your salvation and then isolate yourself. But listen, the gospel and the church is one of the only organizations in the world that doesn't exist for itself. Right? In other words, the gospel should not pass and come to us. The gospel should not just come to us. It should pass through us. And so if you're here today and you don't have any friends who don't know Christ, time to start making some friends. If you're here today and you have friends that don't know Christ, and you've been, but, but you've been on level one with them for like eight years, it's time to go to level two. Like, like in eight years, you've never talked about your faith for fear that the friendship might end. Listen. If the gospel is such a tremendous reality in your life, wouldn't some of your best friends know about that? Like, we'll talk about the movie we saw, and we'll talk about the football game. Broncos, yeah! Jesus. Mm. Now, I'm not saying find a street corner in Bullhorn, either. Right? Because that's probably, that's a bad deal. Don't do that. If you do, don't say that you're from Emmaus Road. And so it's like sharing the gospel in relationship with people. This reality ought to give us a new zeal. But then for those who don't know Christ, we need to realize that there's a tremendous opportunity. As we move into our time of, of worship and singing and celebrating the goodness of God, um, I, I would invite you to, to make that decision. And I'm not going to make you come up front. I'm not going to make you stand up. I only ask that you make that decision between you and God. And beginning a relationship with God is it, pretty simple, but it's very profound. To begin a relationship with God, we first simply need to recognize that our hearts have not been in line with his way, that we have been sinful. And we need to repent of that sin. And repent doesn't just mean that I'm regretful for, for that reality. Repent actually means that I'm going to churn away from that. Repent is I'm going to do a 180. I was going in this direction, and it was leading me to condemnation. But because of the goodness of God, I'm going to repent of that, move a 180 to where Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I'm going to turn a 180, and we do that through prayer. And we just say, God, forgive me for the ways in which I have not lived according to your way. I want to confess you as my Lord and Savior. And from now on, I'm going to depend on you and your spirit. I'm going to lean on the community that you've given to me to walk according to your ways. And that's it. That's all it takes. 
But that actually is not an end, it's a beginning. It's a brand new life, walking in Christ. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.